Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for allowing me to come back a second week and share with you out of your, song, out of your study in the Psalms and kind of culminating your, uh, your series over the summer. It's a privilege to be here. And worship team, thank you so much. Um, I was talking to Chris uh, just after, between services, and all those songs that were sung just prior to this were chosen months ago. And it's absolutely fascinating because if you think through those songs, uh, everyone connected with, to the things I'm going to say today. So absolutely fascinating to see how all that happened. But anyhow, worship team, uh, thank you so much. Uh, just uh, wonderful to lead us in the way you have in, uh, in worshipful singing to our, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. A little bit about the school. Um, you are a partner church, and thank you for being that. Uh, there are some financial commitments you make to us when you become a partner church and some other kinds of commitments, prayer commitments, and we appreciate that very much. A few things have happened at the, ch- at the school that you need to be in prayer for. Um, our president, Dr. Rick Reed, some of you know him. I think he's been here to speak. And um, he has been uh, appointed now as chancellor of a Heritage College and Seminary, uh, moving from the president's position to a chancellor position. Um, he will be serving more as a statesman for the school, um, moving around from church to church and conferences and workshops and, and conventions and that kind of thing and speaking on behalf of the school and, and uh, serving the school in that way. He's been our president for the last 10 years and he's led us beautifully. He's been a wonderful man to work with. I've been part of the leadership team there and uh, just an absolutely fabulous man to be around and to be part of his world. Um, however, he, uh, he is uh, kind of moving closer to retirement and so um, the board has appointed him to be our chancellor and I'm really, really pleased about this. This is gonna be something really special and he will do an absolutely fabulous job for us. However, that leaves a gap, and um, we are now in the uh, interesting position of searching for a president uh, to take over the school. I chatted with your pastor uh, earlier this morning, but he turned me down, so uh, you're safe there. Um, uh, So we are in searching for a president. Uh, Presidents are hard to find. They don't grow on trees, and... um, uh, yeah, so we're probably going to get, we're going to give ourselves a year uh, to engage in this search. We're going to be appointing an interim president for a while. Uh, and by the way, that's not me, even though the last two times this happened, it was. Uh, but I'm too old for this now, so somebody else has got to do that job. But um, we, are, we are going to be appointing an interim president and then searching for a, our next president. And uh, by the way, uh, 10 years is about the normal stint uh, for a president. That's pretty well run of the mill. Dr. Or, or Mr. Brubaker, who served as our president, actually served us for almost 20 years. And uh, so it was, again, it was a joy to work with him as well. Um, so um, yeah, so uh, please be in prayer for us as a school. We've got some big decisions to make. Our board has some big decisions to make. And, uh, but I'm looking forward to the future. Uh, I still teach there as an adjunct prof. I am now Professor Emeritus. They missed that in the introduction. And that's really important because that demands respect. <laughs> okay. Um, that just means that you're old and they're trying to kick you out. But... Um, um, 
So uh, I have, I'm looking forward to, uh, I, I have great anticipation uh, for what's coming down the line for Heritage College and Seminary. I've been there for 45 years and kind of seen it all happen over those years. And I am just as enthused about the place as I ever have been. So uh, we're in, we're, I believe we are in a good place. We've got a great board. And I believe that God will lead us to the next person to lead us um, as president in due time. So thank you. Thank you for being a partner, church. Uh, thank you for your support. For those students that you send our way, uh, we appreciate uh, the opportunity to teach. Um, and by the way, if you are, are interested in taking courses, um, you can ask folks around here, but by, I'll be around for a little while after the service, and by all means, you can come by, and we can chat about that before I leave today. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together this man and this woman in the bonds of holy matrimony. According to the ordinance of God, the customs of the Christian church, the laws of this province, and to implore on their behalf the blessing of God. Sound familiar? Of course. It's the opening line to a Christian wedding. And weddings have always been a time of great celebration and joy. And while the way that weddings are done very widely, or how, the way they do it widely across the world, at any time or in any culture, they have always been a significant event for both family and society. And even as we have seen in our history as Canadians, when it is the wedding of royalty, the pomp and pageantry are unparalleled. And so in the Old Testament, when a king got married, it was a big deal. It was a major happening. And yeah, it, was, it, is, some, it is difficult to reconcile this with the polygamous practices of Old Testament kings. And kings did have more than one wife. David had more than one wife. Solomon had hundreds of wives and concubines. And so, yeah, it's a little difficult to reconcile the, the pomp and pageantry of the wedding of a king with the, which you might call the polygamous practices or the harems that kings collected in Israel back in those days. But, irrespective of those questions, which I can't answer, the wedding of an Old Testament king was a big deal. And so because of that, it's probably not surprising that there were songs in Israel that celebrated such a special event. And it is interesting because one of those wedding songs actually got into our Bibles and into the book of Psalms. And this song was sung in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the synagogue, and yes, in the church. Because the Psalter, where this song is found, was the hymn book of the first century church. So the psalm is Psalm 45. And if you've got a Bible, you can certainly turn there uh, in your Bible, or we're going to read it off the screen. And, um, and just understand that this psalm is about a wedding of an Old Testament king, whoever that might have been. 
So let's read it. This is the word of the Lord. We are reading Holy Scripture. For the director of music, to the tune of lilies, of the sons of Korah, a mosquito, a wedding song. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. Your throne, O God, will last forever. And the scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From palaces adorned with ivory, the music of the strings make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women, and at your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people and your father's house. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Honor him, for he is your Lord. The king of Tyre will come with a gift. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments, she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her and those brought to be with her, led with joy and gladness as they enter the palace of the king. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory throughout all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the reading of God's holy word. So what do we find here? What is this psalm saying? I would suggest to you that this psalm, in this psalm, we find a scribe, the I in the first and last verses, extolling the honor of a king at his wedding and calling on his bride in all her beauty to embrace the glory and wonder of being the bride of such a king. Let me say that again. In this psalm, I believe we find a scribe extolling the honor of a king as his wedding and calling on his bride in all her beauty to embrace the glory and wonder of being a bride of such a king. Now, a lot of what we see here in this uh, psalm doesn't really fit uh, today's modern weddings, but certainly that's how they thought about things back then. So a couple things to get started on this psalm. First, who is the king? Who is the king that's being talked about here? And the answer is, we have no idea. (laughs) Could be David, could be Solomon, could be Hezekiah, could be Josiah, Joash, who knows? We don't know. 
And so the psalm was probably sung of all Israelite kings. It was a wedding song. It was a song that was sung perpetually of the king as they came one after another. And yes, the harems, the polygamy, was a difficult, it's a difficult thing to reconcile with all this. But we take the psalm as it is, a wedding song for an Israelite king and all Israelite kings. Title gives us a bit of information about the psalm. It's written to the choir director, which tells us that it was intended for public worship. The choir director taught the choirs, who taught the people. They were the worship leaders, and so the people sang the song. So it was definitely a worship song, uh, sung at the wedding of a king. Talks about lilies, to the tune of lilies. The phrase, the tune of, is not in the text. We're guessing that there was a tune out there called lilies. And that was the tune to which they sang this psalm. We don't have that tune anymore. Kind of neat if we did, then we'd know what, what tune to sing it to. We'd know how to sing it. It says that it is of the sons of Korah. Sons of Korah were a Levitical family that um, were prominent in Israel's Old Testament worship. And so they were part of crafting songs and psalms and giving them to the choir director who then gave them to the choir who taught the people. So this is a a Levitical family that participated heavily in the musical worship of Old Testament Israel. And I think, I would argue, that when he says, my heart is stirred by a noble theme, that we've got one of those sons of Korah is that I that begins and ends the psalm. He's the scribe that is, in fact, writing and speaking uh, this song. Says that it's a mashkiel, a mashkiel. Uh, we're not sure what that word means. We think it means something to do with wisdom, but we don't know. That word does not occur anywhere in the Hebrew text other than in psalm titles. So it's a little odd to try and kind of figure out what that word means, but we think it's related to a Hebrew word meaning wisdom. So some kind of wisdom psalm is what we've got in front of us here. And then it says, a wedding song. Literally, the text says, a song of loves. A song of loves. Which is obviously speaking about the love between a groom and a bride. And so they have kind of interpreted that phrase, a song of loves, and made it and turned it into the phrase, a wedding song. It has to do with the wedding of a king. So, that's kind of what the psalm's all about. It's a psalm celebrating the wedding of a king and calling upon the bride who is adorned in gold from Ophir. Ophir is a place somewhere in the ancient Near East. We don't know where. And in, in, in encouraging or exhorting the bride to embrace her groom, her king, and talks about her beauty and or, or, or uh, adorned in gold and all that kind of thing. So that's what this psalm is about. So, this raises the question. Here's the dilemma. If this is about an Old Testament king or kings, how are we to read this today? Is there any way in which this psalm connects with us? Is this psalm simply a curiosity of the past? Interesting. It's a psalm of a king back in the Old Testament times. Is that all this is? Um, how is the church supposed to sing this 
And it was part of their worship. Paul told the church to sing the psalms. And he didn't say, leave some of them out. So the first century church would have been singing this song. We're not Old Testament Israel. We are the church. We don't, as a church, have a human king, human king ruling us as God's people, as the church. So again, how do we read this song? Curiosity, a relic of the past, historical peace, or is there some way that it speaks to us today? And the answer, as you would expect, since I'm talking to you about it today, is yes, it does. And the answer comes from the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 1 writes this. Listen, listen carefully. This is what he writes. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Wait a minute. Does that sound familiar? Well, of course. It's a direct quote of Psalm 45. Well, then the question is, why did the author of Hebrews quote this text? This text from Old Testament Israel talking about the wedding of a king. Well, the line before that quote from Psalm 45 goes like this. About the son, who is Jesus Christ, he says. In other words, the author of Hebrews is pointing to Jesus as the ultimate realization, fulfillment, completion of this psalm. I don't consider it a direct prophecy going from one to the other, but I see it moving in stages through the kings. And then very interestingly, because as they sang it, they also went into exile. And when they went into exile, they continued to sing the Psalms, all the Psalms, including Psalm 45. But now they didn't have a king, they were in exile. So now they're singing the song in hope, waiting for the king, waiting for the return of the king, waiting for the coming of the king. When they would come back from exile and come back into their land, which they did, and they rebuilt the temple. But guess what? The king never showed up. And they continued to sing the song generation after generation after generation for hundreds of years they sang the song it continued to be sung in the te- in the temple it continued to be sung in the synagogue hoping and anticipating the coming of the king that this psalm spoke of and then all of a sudden he came and his name was Jesus. And Jesus of Nazareth, according to the author of Hebrews, is the fulfillment, the completion, the end point, the culmination, the totalizing, if you like, of this psalm. So now, 
We sing the song. We read it. But we don't read it of an Old Testament king. We don't read it of David or Solomon or any of those other kings. We now read it of the king of kings and lord of lords. The ultimate and final king of Israel. The ultimate and final king of the church. And the ultimate and final king of the world. Namely, Jesus of Nazareth. And we sing it as a worshiping congregation of Jesus. And we extol his beauty and his grace and his power and his glory and his, and his desirability as our king and groom as described in this psalm. He is the ultimate one that this king and groom is talking about. And we read the, how our king is extolled by the scribe in this psalm. But this raises another question. Because in the psalm, it talks about a bride. In the end of verse 9, at your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. Hmm. Who is the bride? Fascinating, isn't it? And it calls upon the bride in her beauty to respond to the honor of being his bride. Who is the bride of King Jesus? Who is the bride of the bridegroom? Well, we know, don't we? Because the New Testament makes it, makes it very clear that the bride, in fact, is us. The church. The church is the bride of Christ. Now, some may say, wow, that's a big hermeneutical, that's a big fancy word for interpretation. A big hermeneutical leap to get from an Old Testament psalm to the church. But I unapologetically go there because I believe that that's exactly what's going on in this text. Others are not quite as enthused about that, some of the commentators I read, but I think they're wrong. <laughs> and I think we've got the church being talked about here. And when we, dis when we look at this psalm and we see the church buried within the progress of how this revealed all came about in the progress of Revelation, we see an absolutely spectacular and beautiful picture of us. And I have to confess, I, I have not worked hard on this psalm in all my teaching of the psalms. I, I read it through with the students and that kind of thing, but I, didn't, I haven't really worked hard on it. But this week I did, and I'll tell you, I was just overwhelmed time and time again as I went back to it. And I, would go, I, I did the initial work on it and did all the exegetical and hard work that we do. And then I'd go back and read it again and read it again and read it again and adjust and think through. And, and it's just been an overwhelming week that I come to you today having buried myself in this text. And coming to a new realization, a fresh realization, first of all, of our king and our bridegroom, Jesus of Nazareth, but also the beauty of what it is to be his church and to be his bride. It's amazing. 
John in Revelation verse 19, or chapter 19 wrote this, Hallelujah, for the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Fine linen, fine linen bright and clean, was given her to wear. And we could go to half a dozen other passages to talk about the church as the bride of Christ. And so we have moved from an Old Testament reading on this psalm into a New Testament reading, and we have used the New Testament to bring the king and the bridegroom in this psalm to Jesus and to us, his church as the bride. So, now what I am going to do is I'm going to reread the psalm. And now I want you to think it through and read it with me not of an Old Testament king, but in fact of Jesus. And not as a bride coming to an Old Testament king, but us as a church. Let's read it again. Let's hear what the psalmist has to say and what the Holy Spirit, what I, in what I believe, intends for us to hear today as the church of Jesus Christ. The title is there. The scribe starts off by saying, my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite verses for the king. My, ten, my tongue is a pen of a skillful writer. And that's the scribe. And perhaps that's even us speaking of the joy and beauty of what it is to have Christ as our king. Now, we read what he says of the king. And we are reading it of King Jesus. You are the most excellent of men. Your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. And we see all those pictures of Christ in the book of Revelation and elsewhere. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously, which he will someday, in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. Wow. The banner over his rule is truth, humility, and justice. Wouldn't we all love that every despot in this world was truth, humility, and justice? And that's the day when it's coming, when Christ is coming, and he will rule the world as king in truth, humility, and justice. Wow. Let your right hand achieve awesome deeds. Let your, arrows, let your sharp arrows pierce the heart of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath their feet, which, which they will someday. Your throne, O God, Christ, will last forever and ever. The scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. As he sits on his throne, the scepter that is between his knees is going to have the word justice written on it. And in the Old Testament, justice means care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the voiceless, the marginalized. That's what justice means. It doesn't mean vengeance. It means care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the voiceless, the marginalized, and that will, be the, that will be the scepter between his knees. Amazing to think about. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. That word anointing is the Hebrew word Mashiach. We can hear the word Messiah, the anointed one, and he is the final and ultimate Mashiach anointed one. All your robes are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia from palaces adorned with ivory from the music of strings makes you glad. Daughters of kings are among your honored women, those who had attended him in his, in his, in his palace. And at your right hand is the royal bride in gold of Ophir. 
and the bride is at his side, ordained or um, clothed in gold from this place called Ophir. But you have no idea where it is. So that's about the king. We read it of King Jesus. But then we come to the bride and listen to what he says about the bride. And now it's us. Listen, daughter, and pay careful attention. Forget your people in your father's house. Now, we've got to be a little bit careful with that one. That is an Old Testament reality. And in fact, but it is in fact a teaching and an exhortation to the church. Today, we would not say that of a bride to forget her father's house and to forget her family. I have three married daughters, and if that ever came up in a wedding, it wouldn't make me very happy. But back in that day, that's the way they did it. And when it's applied to Christ in the church, it is an exhortation that we need to hear. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son. We have been brought out from under the rule of the evil one and the world and brought into the world and the rule of the very son of God, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of righteousness. And yes, the exhortation to us is to forget the family of the past from which we have been freed. The kingdom of the world and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Let the king be enthralled by your beauty. Wow! The beauty of the church. Let him be enthralled by us. (laughs) Maybe we need to work harder on that one. I don't know. People of wealth will seek your favor. All glorious is the princess within her chamber. Her gown is interwoven with gold. In embroidered garments she is led to the king. Her virgin companions follow her. They are those who, who, who are brought to be with her. They led in joy, with joy and gladness as they enter the palace of the king. And today as we have sung, we have entered the palace of the king. We have come into the presence of Christ and we have sung in joy and gladness of the beauty and wonder of our king and our groom. Jesus Christ himself. Then the scribe talks about the perpetuity of Christ's kingdom. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. And it tells about the fact that Christ's reign and rule will go on forever. The scribe then concludes with saying this. I will perpetuate your, men- your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. And I guess in some ways, we take the place of that scribe and we are called on to perpetuate the name of Christ throughout the generations forever and ever. So, what are the takeaways? What do we find here? What do we walk away with? What do we leave with this morning? This powerful expose of our King Jesus, a powerful expose of who we are as his bride. And the first thing is, we see Jesus in a new and fresh way. 
or perhaps in a way we've seen many times before, but it's brought to our attention beautifully by this psalm, and perhaps is the most glorious way we could end this series of of your study in the psalms, to, to end with the glory of Jesus of Nazareth, our King and Bridegroom. He is glorious. He is committed to truth, humility, and justice. He will rule the nations. His throne will last forever. The scepter that he holds uh, between his knees is a scepter of justice, caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the marginalized, the voices. He will love moral and ethical righteousness, and this is the Jesus we worship, and this is the Jesus we have sung of earlier today. This is the Jesus that is our bridegroom, and this is the Jesus that we are called to embrace, love, and follow. Second thing that we take away is that we see ourselves as the bride, his church. We are called to leave our former family behind. Absolutely. The former kingdom that we were part of, the kingdom of darkness ruled by the father of all evil, a kingdom and family that viewed power, wealth, fame, pride, strength as virtues to be praised and pursued. And we have been transferred into that kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, a king that lives out truth, humility, justice, and righteousness. We are now the bride of that king. We are citizens of that kingdom. We are, we are called not to go back into that previous world. We hear the gospel. This is amazing good news. It's good news for us. As we hear about our king, we hear about ourselves. And we're a pretty motley crew. And yet Jesus sees us in beauty. It's amazing to think about that. It's good news. And the invitation to the world is to to embrace this king, to embrace this groom, and become part of the bride in all the joy and beauty that it brings, to become part of the bride people, the bride people of God. We're challenged. I find myself challenged by this. As I said, as I worked on this text all week, I went back to a time and time. I couldn't get away from it. I just went back to a time and time again. And I had to ask myself, have I left our former world behind? Have I left the kingdom of darkness behind, the one that is ruled by the evil one? And I had to ask myself, as members of Christ's bride, as a member of Christ's bride, am I worthy of the adulations that our poet uses to, to describe the bride of the king? I found myself challenged and convicted by some of these things. So we are pushed to response, aren't we? I have no idea how this is impacting each of us here. I suspect that the Holy Spirit is speaking to each of us in different but real and powerful ways. And as I said, it certainly happened to me as I prepared what I thought I should say to you this morning. But I guess I would ask two questions with a couple of questions attached as we leave this morning. And the first question is this. Are we seeing Jesus the way that the scribe describes him in all his glory and majesty and splendor? And as we sang a little bit earlier, will his praise ever be on our lips? Are we worshiping him as such? And then the second question is, are we seeing ourselves as his church, as Christ's bride, in the way that the scribe talks about? 
that have rejected the values of power, pride, wealth, dominance, moral and ethical perversion? Have we left all that behind, that kingdom of darkness? And have we done all we can to make Christ's bride, the church, the royal bride, to be adorned in gold, to have our king enthralled with our beauty, and have we entered the palace of our king with unmitigated joy and gladness. God bless you all.